Well, you know, Sharon, it's it's been about a year now, and uh, I know you and your family are going to form a walk to honor your, your granddaughter, Emma Kate. And why don't you tell us a little bit more about the organization that, that helped get through some of this for you guys? Yeah, thanks, Jeremy. It's called Halos of the St. Croix Valley, and it is an organization that helps families struggling with the loss of a child from miscarriage all the way up to 20 years of age. And this walkathon is to raise money for this organization. It's a 501c3, and the only way that they survive is on donations. And this is the largest fundraiser that they have every year. So we're going to put a link in the show notes. A lot of our listeners donated to this last year whenever we walked in memory of Emma K. And I'd appreciate it if you would donate again if you find it within your heart to do so. This organization is fantastic. They came in, they took care of everything. And when you lose a child, you don't know what to do. And you're just frozen. And they came in and took care of everything. And the other thing about this organization, most of the volunteers that they have are all people who have suffered from child loss. Yeah. So We'll put the link in the show notes, and if anybody would like to donate, we would certainly appreciate it. We have a goal, of course, and we were the number one raising walk team last year and would like to do that again. So I appreciate you mentioning it, Jeremy. Absolutely. Today's episode of Beyond the Mask is presented by the insurance specialists at BrightThink Wealth Strategies. Find the disability insurance coverage that fits you best right now. Email Robert Smith at rsmithjr at financialguide.com. The show is also made possible by the team at CRNA Financial Planning. Get a free consultation today to be guided through the complexities of investing and financial planning. Just visit crnafinancialplanning.com. We'd also like to thank Helping Hands and OSA EMR for their support of the show. And don't forget, listening to our podcast can earn you Class B credits. For more information on how you can submit them, check out the CE Credit tab on our website, beyondthemaskpodcast.com. Welcome to Beyond the Mask, innovation and opportunities for CRNAs with Jeremy Stanley and Sharon Pierce. We know you spend your day caring for your patient's best interests. On our show, we want to care for you. Join us as we leave the operating room and learn the latest in the CRNA industry. Beyond the Mask starts in 10, 9, 8, 7. Welcome to Beyond the Mask. I'm Jeremy Stanley, and I've been working with CRNAs for over 23 years, and I'm married to one. And my co-host is... Sharon Pierce. Sharon's a practicing CRNA for over 20 years, a past president of the ANA, the NCANA, and she's held many other leadership roles. As usual, our goal with every episode is to educate and enlighten CRNAs, and I think our topic today is definitely going to do that. And Sharon, what time is it? It's time to wake up, Jeremy. I think it is. Well, happy hot day, Sharon. Ah, listen... 
feels great outside. I've been in the operating room where it feels like you could hang meat. So I've actually turned the air conditioner off once I got to the house. Gosh, wow. Yeah, I um, actually drove home to do the podcast today, and I walked outside, and I thought, I am getting back in the air conditioner as fast as I possibly can. 97 (laughs) degrees in, um, you know, mid-June. That's not setting up well for the summer for us. You know, know, what was it? A few years ago, we had like record setting over a hundred degree days. And actually my daddy was still alive. So it had to be greater than four years ago. And he said, you know, they don't count the 97, 98, 99 degree days. He goes in, what's a degree? It's just as hot. It's hot. It's kind of like people out West say, Oh, it's a dry heat. I'm like, it's still hot out there. Yeah. You know, without the humidity or whatever. So well, well, I'll warm up in a little bit. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, I think we got another great show lined up here today, and I'm interested in, in talking to our next guest. And um, I know a little bit about her from my work on the ANA Foundation Board, and um, have have learned a lot more about her as of late. So we'll talk a little bit about her endeavors. But we have with us today Miss Sonia Moore. Welcome, Sonia. Hi. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Thank you for being here. Yeah, we've been waiting almost a year. Wow. (laughs) Worth the way. Right. Worth the way. We're building the anticipation. That's what goes on. Right. right? Well, I'm glad we could finally get it all worked out. (laughs) Well, Sonia, why don't you tell our listeners who might not know you and know of your work a little bit about you and your background and, and so forth? Right. Well, I've been a CRNA now for about 25 years in Cleveland, Ohio. I've been a program director now since 2014. I've done some independent practice work at critical access hospitals and rural communities. I'm a mom of two. Well, I guess I should say a mom of three. I got to uh, count my furry person. So oh, I thought you were going to say you're a husband. That's what I thought. That's where I thought she was going to. Well, that would make four. <laughs> well, there you go. So, yeah. So. I've just been a real advocate of uh, the profession and how we can make real change for individuals wanting to be in our profession and for for those already in our profession, whether it be through advocacy and changing big P policy or little P policy, but also just making progress within within the profession so that everyone has an opportunity to participate in what I think is the greatest profession out there. Yeah. And, well, and I would agree with that. Sonia, <laughs> and I was going to say, when you said 25 years, I, I had no clue. And you don't look like you've been in the industry for 25 years either, just so you know. Well, thank you so much. Yeah. I don't know I when you went to school, like you were five or six or, you know, you're yeah. like, uh, you know, a Doogie, Doogie Howser prodigy or something, you know, but uh, you, you definitely don't look like uh, you, you've been I agree. Long, so. You know what we say about that? The vapors have been good to her. Oh. <laughs> well, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Yeah, I've actually been a registered nurse now for 30 years, CRNA for 25. Wow. Wow. Well, and, and our topic today is, is going to be really something that I know you've you've worked on for a long time. Um, and we're going to be talking about, you know, kind of the workforce and, you know, the CRNA industry looks a lot alike, um, you know. You and, mean really white? It's a really white industry, you know, coming, 
<laughs> coming from from a white male and you know a white female you know we can look at this industry and go there's something not quite right with with where we are there so we're going to be talking about that and you know how innovation can lead us to increase some of the diversity in this industry and and even in the educational pipelines and so forth and you know I, I know we'll hit on this as well but I think there's been study after study that shows when you have a more diverse workforce in healthcare that you get better outcomes as well. Um, so we'll, we'll hit on all those. So why don't you tell us why this topic is important and why you've spent a lot of your career advocating for this topic? Well, I grew up in the inner city and really watched as folks started trying to get themselves together to go off to college. A lot of us didn't know what we wanted to do. I was fortunate enough to participate in a program in my high school that literally took me to one of the area hospitals. And I went there specifically to shadow an anesthesiologist. However, once I got there, the anesthesiologist gave me to the CRNA. Ooh, look what he did. Yes. So, and I spent the day with the CRNA. And out of all the things that I tried, I tried mortuary science, uh, I tried uh, biochemistry, engineering, I tried a lot of things. The CRNA role that I shadowed that day at 15 was the thing that really stuck with me. And I remember going home and saying to my mom that this is what I really want to do. She's like, well, what is it? I said, This is what they wrote down for me. I don't really know what it is. I didn't ask. At 15, you don't really know the questions to ask about a future career. So I said, I didn't really ask the questions I think I needed to ask, but I think we could find out. And you have to remember, this was pre-internet, pre-email. So we found the AANA, actually, and they they mailed, snail mailed a whole list of schools. And I realized we had two schools that were a couple miles from my home, the Mount Sinai uh, program and the Cleveland Clinic program. And so I called both program directors and the Mount Sinai program director reached out, talked to him for quite a while, I'd say about 45 minutes or so. And he finally said, well, what nursing school did you go to? And I said, nursing school? I haven't been to nursing school. I'm a junior in high school. And he was uh, he was outdone by that a little bit. And he said, well, you have a few steps to go before we can really have a conversation. So he was the one that actually sent me to or got me interested in going to a four year nursing program instead of taking the step in nursing that most folks in my community would take, which is either going to LPN to ADN to BSN route or ADN route. He said, by the time you finish an ADN program we'll be requiring a BSN or a bachelor's degree to enter into the profession. So I decided that's the day I decided I was going into nursing. And I literally looked for a program. I had to go to school within the state. So I looked for a program within the state of Ohio that would let me in their nursing program that first year. Because, you know, a lot of programs, you have to do pre-work, freshman and sophomore year, and then junior year, you have to apply to nursing. That frightened me a little bit. So I wanted to go somewhere that let me write in my freshman year. And that was the University of Cincinnati. Went down there and came back. And the the thing is, nursing school is the same. The nursing profession is the same. I felt 
alone. I had a couple friends, but not a lot of friends. So once I got out of uh, nursing school, I have to say I was frightened a little bit to take that next step into an anesthesia program. Hence, that's why the first, the one-year requirement, I think back then it was more like a two-year requirement of critical care experience. After that two years, even though I felt very proficient at my critical care job, I worked in a, a cardiac ICU, cardiac surgery ICU. I felt very competent and was a leader I felt on that unit. I didn't feel confident enough to go back to anesthesia school, hence why the five years in between. So I finally built up the confidence and and went back and I noticed that my program looked very much like my nursing school class. It was me and one other minority in the program. And again, just like anything else, whether good or bad, we all gravitate to what we know. So we gravitated towards each other. Our other classmates gravitated towards each other. So we kind of felt like we were on an island, but we worked together and we got through anesthesia school and we're best friends to this day because of that experience. What led me to keep doing the work is everywhere I went to work, I was the only minority, whether it was a rural area where I was going to uh, do some locums or independent practice work or a major uh, care team model at a teaching facility, I was still the only one, or maybe there were a couple more minorities there. When I began teaching in 2007, where I was just uh, clinical coordinating and teaching like one day a week, I noticed all the people in those classes looked alike. And they were no different than what they were 15 years ago, 10, 15 years before. And once I became program director, I noticed that there wasn't a change. And I noticed classes were still the same. So I decided that I was going to do do something or try to work to figure out why this was. And so my DMP work was based on the thought that maybe folks out there were like me, just weren't aware of the profession. And if they had been aware, maybe we would be in the profession. So that's the kind of the attitude I took that it's about awareness. That's what it is. They just don't know. I found out that that through my DMP work, that that was some of the cause. But then I also realized that there were other real barriers, systemic barriers that were preventing people from getting into programs. And so why don't you tell us some of the systemic barriers so that we can define that so people can understand? So a lot of the systemic barriers, when we talk about educational pipelines and the barriers that come into place, some of those barriers are financial. Mm -hmm. Some of them are mission requirements. And when we think about admission requirements, you know, we often hear, well, we don't want to quote unquote, dumb down our profession. You know, everybody has to meet these requirements. But when we look at requirements for higher education, it's not equitable because All secondary schools are not the same. They're not equal. And so people coming from certain secondary schools have more of an advantage than others. So the barriers that were put in place were these arbitrary numbers for standardized testing, like GREs and things like that, GPAs, where or specific courses that we wanted people to get specific grades in. So 
you know, science courses, I had someone tell me once, well, I don't understand what you're talking about because math and science is the same. Well, math and science is not the same. If you come from a high school where you took a advanced placement course, right, that had a higher education like resources, textbooks and things like that, and someone else got an A in their science courses, but they didn't have any advanced courses at their school because the resources to do that wasn't there. They may have gotten an A in that science course, but they're not going to be on the same playing field as that individual that had multiple advanced placement courses. GRE scores, you know, uh, when I think about the GRE, I think about when I went to take the SAT and you know how um, we do the this is to this as that is to that. Well, I got a question. This is to this as a teacup is to, right? Mm -hmm. Saucer was one of the choices. And now I know was the right choice. But at the time, I didn't know that. When I saw saucer, I'm thinking flying saucer. saucer. Right. And people (laughs) may think, what? But we never had saucers in our home. So I'd never really seen one. I didn't know. Oh, that I probably was- missed that question too, Sonia. We yeah. didn't have saucers in my house. Right. So, <clears throat> so it's kind of like, so, there, so we have those types of questions though, thinking that everyone that takes this test is going to have the same environmental experiences. And the reality is we just don't. And in order to do what Jeremy was saying earlier about the workforce and making professions look more like the workforce we have to take all of those things into consideration yeah well let's let's kind of expound upon that just just a little bit and and why why is it important to have a, a diverse workforce i mean you know we i hit on one of those things that, that i happen to know a little bit about earlier but you know this so much better than than we could ever articulate well you know the simplest piece of it is in healthcare. There are so many healthcare disparities out there. And when we break those disparities down, we get to one of the simplest things that certain communities are very mistrustful of the healthcare system. And for good reason, right? They right. there's been experiments and tests and things done. And so Tuskegee Project. Right, the Tuskegee Project and things. And that was why a lot of folks said that communities were afraid to get the COVID vaccine. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. But, you know, when people of a certain color and a certain age see people coming to take care of them that don't look like them, they mistrust it. Yeah. They automatically feel that there's something wrong with it and I don't want to trust it. Yeah. So one of the biggest things, you know, it's been decades of everyone telling us this, the Sullivan Report in 2004, the Institute of Medicine telling us in 2010. The future of nursing report that just came out. We've been saying the same things for decades that we need to have folks that uh, look like individuals that are in healthcare or who have the same lived experience. And that's where that trust then comes from. If I can trust that this individual had similar experiences to me, they remind me of someone I know then they're more trustful of what you're delivering to them. You know, um, there's this notion that 
we all, and I think it's a true notion that we all want to deliver the best healthcare out there and provide the best service, but there is still a barrier between healthcare provider and some of uh, their patients. And I think that that's why it's really important. You know, it will give us a more vital and more fruitful healthcare system if we do that. You know, I equate racial diversity in healthcare as I do diversity of thought in healthcare. Right. We have to have people thinking differently, bringing different ideas to the table to come up with the best plan for individuals. And everybody's plan isn't the same. So if I haven't lived an experience, which was sometimes I have to even admit, sometimes was harder for me to learn in nursing where someone's perspective was, a non-minority's perspective was, in my mind, it's like, why are they doing that? Why why wouldn't they do that? But it's because it's not their experience. And I don't know that experience. So we all bring our own implicit biases to the table, regardless of whether we want to admit it or not. We all have them. I have them. Everyone does. But what's important is recognizing that we have them, that we take them with us everywhere we go. We go to work, we take them with us. So we say, well, no, I care about people. I'm going to take the best care of people that I can. But if you don't recognize those biases that you have, you are more than likely putting that on that patient. You're assuming things about that patient based on your implicit biases. But once you get to a point where, you know, some people call it woke, but I just call it becoming aware and recognizing, you know, our own faults and frailties and being open to seeing everybody as they are, we can then provide people with the best care and we won't have to wait for the future in nursing 2030, 2040 report to tell us to do it again. As a CRNA, you spend years preparing yourself for this career, so we don't want to see you lose out on any of the income you've worked so hard to earn. The best way to protect yourself and give you the confidence that a major life event won't disrupt your financial future is through disability insurance. We've known disability income specialist Robert Smith for many years and have seen the work he's done with nearly 2,000 CRNAs over multiple decades. He can help identify any gaps in your existing coverage and fill those gaps by finding the best value on a policy. Contact Robert and let him know you heard about him on our podcast. Send him an email at rsmithjr at financialguide.com. That's rsmithjr at financialguide.com. Or call him at 504-394-6557. Protect your greatest asset as a CRNA, yourself and your ability to earn a living by adding disability insurance to your financial plan. So, Sonia, let me, um, I just want to play, and, and I've heard, you know, other arguments out there, and, and I've heard it from CRNAs as well. I mean, and it's, it's interesting to me because, you know, I had someone say to me, well, if we continue to have people that look like each other have to be in the room for that person to feel comfortable, then we're never going to get comfortable with each other. And, and they, were, they were expounding that, you know, that's one of the problems with America right now. The reason we have this great divide that we do on so many fronts is that we can't find that common ground. And I'd be interested in your viewpoint on that because it took me back a little bit when I, when I heard him say that. You know, again, it was just, you know, I'd love to hear your viewpoint on that because, you know, ultimately in a perfect world, it should not matter. We all know it does. But in a perfect world, you know, the fact that 
Sharon and I and you probably, all three of us, it sounds like, didn't grow up with a silver spoon in our mouth. We've worked hard to get to where we are. Um, your path was different because you just happen to be, you know, uh, another ethnicity than us, you know. I mean, that should not matter in a perfect world, but it does matter. And do you ever think that we could get to a point, and I'm, I'm putting a lot on you right here, but, you know, I, I'm just kind of talking that it wouldn't matter if you walked in the room, if I walked in the room, or Sharon walked in the room, that we just know that you're a consummate professional and, you know, that you're going to take care of me. I mean, can we ever get there? So I'm very hopeful. I think the younger generation, as I listen and I watch them, I am very hopeful. Uh, They have a very inclusive attitude. They have a very opportunity is for everyone sort of attitude. So I'm hoping as they progress and they get older that that some of those things you're talking about will happen. But right now we need to look at it from kind of a historical perspective. Mm-hmm. We're only a few generations away from slavery. I mean, right. if you think about it, we're not yeah. that far away from people being uh, severely oppressed in this country. And so yeah. I think if you were to talk to my parents or Sharon's dad when he was here and ask them some of these same questions, they would have a very different take on it than even we do. So I think as we go from generation to generation and we began to uh, do work, right, to, to demonstrate that you know, we're all equal. We all deserve the same things. And we need to have things in place that are going to elevate people and give people an opportunity. Yeah. And I yeah. think that uh, one of the things that I combat constantly is this idea that, well, my family was poor from a non-minority. My family was poor. We worked hard. We struggled. We did this. Yeah. But when we start thinking about my grandfather, yeah, they were poor, but they weren't allowed to go to school, right? Right. So you have to, when you start breaking this thing down, it's more than just the lack of money. Right. It's more than just uh, where you are. It's what people or opportunities people had. So if you can't go to school, if you can't learn, or say you're lucky enough to be one of those folks that get to go to school, but then you graduate and you're being told out there that, oh, you're a nurse, you're a registered nurse. We're not going to hire you as that. Mm -hmm. We're going to hire you as a nurse's aide. Right. Think about what that does to that family. So that person went to school, got the education, potentially put their family on another uh, trajectory economically. But no, as a society, we held them back. The biggest... um, profession that that happened to was architects and engineers. Hmm. You know, they went to school, they got those degrees. And if they were an architect, they could get a job as a roofer or a construction worker. You know, engineers could get jobs as an assistant or someone that uh, cleaned up within the area or the space that was there. So it's, you know, when we say that if we all look alike, then what is that doing to our system if everybody that takes care of somebody has to look like that individual? What that's doing right now, like that's what we need right now, right? right? When we 
when my dad goes to the doctor, he doesn't talk to anyone. He won't talk to the doctor. He won't talk to anyone. If I'm there, he'll say to them, ask her. Right. He won't talk to them. And, you know, we constantly have this conversation. Why? This is your body. This is your life. Communicate what's going on. They don't listen to me anyway. Mm. So people in his generation of color are looking for folks to listen to them and hear them. Now, when there's someone that looks like him, he thinks that they're listening. Now, whether this is all true, in fact, right. it doesn't matter because what's that old saying? <clears throat> Perception is reality. Absolutely. You know, he's perceiving this. So I think that it's a lot of that going on out there. And I, I do think that in order for us to change some of the poverty or generational poverty that we have, Having a population identical workforce is the way to go, you know, and that's just starting with saying that, yeah, we recognize that um, 88 to 89% of CRNAs are non-minorities. Well, we need to be making sure that the 16% African-American, the 17 to 20% Hispanic folks that they are in CRNAs. They are CRNAs as well. And uh, we drop down that non-minority ratio to more so around 60 60 to 65%. Then we start looking more like the population. Then what happens? We begin to get a more diversity of thought, of feeling, of leadership, right? So right now, when we look at our profession and you go to a meeting, right? You see the same people of color there all the time. Those are the folks that are engaging. Well, where are the others? Well, we see the same every other color. Exactly. That's right. It's always the same. It's always the same folks. Uh, You know, but we, I think we, as we talk about it and we begin to look around, if I go to a meeting and I don't see anyone that looks like me, I'm really not interested probably in coming back unless you're someone like me who says that needs to change. Right. And how do we change that is by going, is by trying to be in leadership to affect these changes. Today's show is brought to you by the folks at CRNA Financial Planning, an independent consulting firm that offers financial planning services exclusively to CRNAs and their families. From planning for a child's future college expenses to building a predictable income stream in retirement, the firm is committed to offering you comprehensive financial services, customized to fit your unique needs and objectives. If you have questions about your financial future, get them answered. Call the team at 855-304-3748. That's 855-304-3748. Or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. Let's talk about, you are clearly passionate about this issue and you've done something. So why don't you tell our listeners what you've done with the program that you've created? The LEAP program, yeah. So the Leadership Excel and Achievement Program, or LEAP for short, is a post-baccalaureate certificate program that came out of the idea that as I was mentoring individuals and talking with uh, medical students, dental students, all sorts of students who were struggling to get accepted in the programs, you know, and I'm reviewing, I'm actually reviewing their 
credentials. And I'm, to myself, I'm saying, why aren't these people in programs? Because they're qualified. They meet the requirements. What is it? And I had one young lady say to me, well, I've had eight interviews and I go to the interviews and after the interview, I can talk to them on the phone. Everyone's excited about me. But then I go to the interview and then I get rejected. So I started investigating what that was about as I was participating with Dr. Gould in the diversity CRNA programs, you know, talking to those students who were interested in becoming CRNAs, hearing some of the same things I was hearing from the medical, the students who were expiring to go to medical school and dental school. I started researching and investigating and found that medicine for the last 50 years have had these post-baccalaureate types of programs. And in talking to some of the students who had participated in some of those programs who were now in medical schools and some still never made it, what was the thing that kind of held them back? And it seemed like that interview, the subjective interview, if you will, was the thing that was holding them back. So as I started thinking about it, I said, what we need is we need something in place that will show that someone's qualified right? Not allow the subjective interview to be a negative in someone's progression. So I developed a 16 credit hour uh, post-baccalaureate certificate program, and anyone can enroll in the program. However, we do target minorities, and the program is designed for individuals who have applied to nurse anesthesia programs and have not been accepted into the program, or someone who feels like so one of the one of the big populations is this population of uh, first time college student who went to school who worked to take care of family and siblings and all of this and didn't know about nurse anesthesia or the notion that we have to do well or get a GPA of a certain number all they knew was the requirement to pass And they met that requirement to pass. But then once they figured they wanted to do something different, they realized that they didn't have the um, A's and B's in the science courses. But then when you look at their transcripts, it says, oh, their first year as a freshman, they got some C's that they couldn't recover from. But if you look at their sophomore, junior and senior year, they did well. You also have, we have programs, and my program does it as well, if a student doesn't meet a certain metric or something that we're looking for, or we feel they didn't explain questions in the interviews well enough, we'll express to them, go take a graduate level science course. They'll go take the graduate level science course, get an A or B in it. And what we were, what I was finding from talking to these applicants is that they would do that, but then there would be something else now wrong. Yeah. And so I felt like, now, Sonia, if that was you and somebody said to you, this is what you need to do. You need to go take a graduate level science course, get an A or a B in it and come back. Mm-hmm. They may not say I'm guaranteed a spot, but they, they're making me think that it's mm-hmm. a good chance that I have. And then they don't give me the opportunity. You know, I'm going to be very disheartened. But what I find about a lot of these students, they keep trying, they keep paying, they keep taking more and more science courses, they keep getting rejected. So uh, when I was on the board of directors with the AANA, you know, we were at a board dinner and I was telling some of the my fellow uh, directors on the board of this idea I had and my the part of the 
program that was holding me up is what do I do with them after they've gone through this program? Now they have to still go through these programs, go through that subjective interview and potentially will be told the same thing. So in speaking with the program directors that were on the board, you know, and just kind of hearing them and hearing their thoughts and their feel about, yes, our profession needs more diversity. I'm willing to participate. I said, what if we put a coalition of programs together? We interviewed these students and decided whether or not they got into the LEAP program. And because we're interviewing them at this stage, we'll meet our requirements of interview And if they get an 80% or better in each of the courses, we can allow them into our programs. They all thought that was a very innovative and dynamic idea. So at that point, that's when I set for creating the program, coming up with the courses necessary, getting the Higher Learning Commission and Ohio Board of Regents permission for, you know, to approve the program, getting Case Western Reserve to approve the program. So it went through each step that any brand new program would have to go through, got all the approvals that you would need to get. And the the thing that I was happy about is I never really met any obstacles along the way other than the name. Like folks weren't sure of like the different names that I had come up with until I came up with the LEAP program. But we were supposed to actually start our first class this year. But when I presented it to the provost in uh, December of 2020, and I said, well, we are, we're looking to start this program in June of 2022. He's like, what's wrong with June of 2021? And it was like, oh my goodness, we have to uh, really work to make this happen. And so we did. I got together with the program directors. Our first year we had over in a two month period, because that's all we had to receive applications was two months. We had over a hundred applications, but we only had 10 spots. Because one of the things that I think is really important is that we have a school that's willing to take at least two students so that when the students go, they have a friend. Because I know how much I needed that friend when I was at anesthesia school. Mm So now that class was successful. We actually graduated nine out of the 10. The 10th person actually maybe three weeks into the LEAP program got accepted into an anesthesia program. Wow. And came and said, uh, Dr. Moore, I don't know what to do. You know, I've committed to the LEAP program, but I got this acceptance. And I'm like, an acceptance into an anesthesia program is what your goal is. So get out of here. Right. Get out of here. (laughs) Yeah. So we only ended up with nine in our first cohort and all nine of them were successful and they have matriculated into their programs. And so the program has, in my eyes, been more of a success than I could ever hope for. We had six more schools join the coalition. So we just started our second cohort of 22 students. Wow. Now tell me, it's 16 hours. How is that laid out? Do they do, is it online? Uh, I, since you talk about interview, I'm sure you're teaching them interview techniques or something, but how, how give me some. So some it's online. So we, yeah, so it's online. So we have students from all across the country that are in within the program and it's a 16 credit hour course and there's three different series. So there's a science series. 
So there's a physiology course and a pathophysiology course. And then there is a writing course, which is three, uh, three writing courses. So each semester they get a writing, a writing course, because that was the other thing. You know, we're transitioning to this DMP. And that was one of the things, regardless of whether we're talking minority or non-minority, the thing that I was hearing from a lot of program directors is because this is a BSN to DMP, we're having students that are struggling with writing. So we felt that, okay, we don't want them to have that issue at all. So we have the three writing courses, Mm -hmm. and then we have the three introduction into specialty courses. And the introduction into specialty courses are actually the basic sciences and basic principles that the MBCRNA has set forth for the national certifying exam. So they have three semesters of that. We take them through that. They're uh, taught by seasoned educators. We have volunteers that volunteer to lecture. We also have individuals because another problem that we that kind of happened organically from this was a lot of CRNAs who have been looking for faculty positions, and they said they've been told that they don't have any teaching teaching experience. Yeah, yeah good. So, uh, so they're volunteering to teach as well, so that that next time a, a teaching opportunity comes up for them, then they can say they have some teaching experience. So I feel like we're tapping that workforce on yeah. both levels at the faculty level and the um, workforce level. So, um, and then there's a few other components to the program. Uh, One that I am very, uh, another one I'm very passionate about is professional socialization. Because I think when we get into these programs, we get into anesthesia programs or, and we don't really understand the culture, what being a professional in that profession is really like and about. So we do a lot of work. We have a leadership professional aspects and leadership course within there that talks about a lot of those things. And then all of the students are committed to come to mid-year with us in the spring so that they could see what being a CRNA is really like. And was was one of your students, Jeremiah, is that? No, so Jeremiah isn't one. Jeremiah is uh, a young man who was fighting to get into anesthesia programs. He is sharp. He is sharp, young man. So I think um, you met some of the LEAP students at mid-year when we were at the PAC event. Mm -hmm. And so they are, you know, they are very committed and interested and passionate young people who just want to be a part of a dynamic profession. So, and then we do mentoring with them, testing and study skills, those sorts of things, and just trying to make them a well-rounded student. So the thing that I say to individuals who say, you know, why are we taking up a spot from someone who may be qualified? We're not taking up a spot for anyone that be, uh, is qualified. These individuals are qualified. However, they're going to be even more qualified. Yeah. when it comes time for them to start their primary programs. Well, hey, hey, Sonia, I want to ask a couple of things. One, um, now, this program is, what, 16 months, if I remember right? It's, it's 12 months, 12 months. But 16 credit hours. 16 credit hours. So they're adding, you know, already, I, I mean, you got to have, uh, you know, BSN. Um, you, you've got to have, you know, critical care experience to, to be a CRNA, ICU experience of at least 12 months. 
Um, and, and now you're adding on another 12 month layer here. And then you've got, you know, what another 30 months in, in anesthesia school. So I would say that if you're going to jump through these kind of hoops, you have to be pretty doggone dedicated to want to do this. And it's not, it's not free to go through LEAP program. And, you know, I, I don't want to say this too loud, but I mean, Case Western is, is not the, the cheapest school in the country either. So there is obviously a layer of dedication. And I think that that probably comes through in these students mm-hmm. as well. Absolutely. I mean, absolutely. Yeah. And that's one of the reasons why you know, because I that's one thing I don't shy away from. Case Western Reserve University is a private university. Absolutely. Yeah. And the cost is what it costs. Um, however, we work really hard to get sponsors and scholarships and gifts. So basically, yeah. with our first cohort, we were able to decrease the cost by about half. Oh, OK. Well, that's good to know, because so, if, if people are listening. Yeah. You know, that could be they look and say, oh, Case Western, oh, I can't do that. You know, right. that might be the first. So that's good. That's good to know. The, the other thing that, you know, I was I was thinking as you were talking was, I don't know what Case Western does or if NBC or NA does or ANA does or each school does it individually. Do they track um, minority acceptance rates versus non-minority acceptance rates in the programs? And if not, why not? So I think that would be um, the COA would do that for us. And I don't think that they have in the past. I know that the diversity committee for the AANA is looking to do some of that. And to be honest with you, I don't know why it wasn't done. I don't want to, you know, I have personal feelings as to why it wasn't done. And I'm not sure if that's why it wasn't done. Yeah. I just feel like there's some things we really don't want to know the answer to. Right. 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 Well, I'm, I'm, the COA and, you know, as a past president, I should know this, I guess, but of, of AANA, do they even have any kind of reporting that, OK, we had 500 applications, we interviewed <clears throat> 60, we took 10. So and not, how did, I don't know that they track any of that. No, not in terms of uh applications for minority or non-minority, what they track is how many applications did you have? How many students did you take? Okay. But I mean, mean, this would not be hard to set up. I mean, even if a school by school Mm -hmm. basis, I mean, it's pretty daggone easy. I mean, you know who applies. You know, I mean, why could you not do that? And why shouldn't that be posted somewhere? To me, that would that would be an easy solution. Um, right. I mean, yeah, I think it would be helpful. It would be helpful not just for our community, but it would be helpful for the applicants as well. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, um, but as far as I know, and I don't want to speak for the COA, right, but right, I right. do believe that the COA, their role in all of this is as long as we're meeting our requirements of acceptance into the program, that's where they begin. Gotcha. So gotcha. that pre-application part, they leave up to the individual universities. But I do think it's important as a profession to know who's interested, <clears throat> know how many people we're turning away, and know what type of people we're turning away. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, we must have some kind of tracking <clears throat> because we know that we turn away 
what, 10 for everyone that gets in. I mean, there's some data out there. Yeah. But I mean, if you know this is a problem and an issue and you look at the the workforce and it's overwhelmingly, you know, a, a white workforce, why would, I mean... I mean, I'm a pretty logical person, and and all my CRNA friends are are smarter than I am. I mean, I, thank you. I, I mean, you you really are. I mean, yeah, I think you guys. I tell you, I tell you all the time, and I say it on this show. I mean, CRNAs are the smartest people I know. Um, yeah, you stole that line from me. I've been saying it forever. Well, maybe I did. You know, the best lines are the ones that are stolen anyway. But anyway, I'm going to digress. But I mean, it just seems, you know, it just seems common sense to me that, that this yes. should be tracked some way, somehow. So Yeah, and I, I agree with you. But I think one of the things that we do have to recognize, Jeremy, is even if we see something, some of us may not see it as a problem. Hmm. Yeah. And some of us may see it as a problem, but not see it as a problem that we're willing to invest our time and gotcha. effort yeah. to fix yeah. or correct. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Well, Sonia, I think we're going to try to conclude here. Is there anything that you would like to, to tell our listeners that maybe we haven't discussed um, at this point? I just I want to say that to everyone is be open, open your heart enough to allow people the opportunity to show you. Because one of my favorite quotes out there is that intelligence is innate innate to everyone, but opportunity is not. And so if we're not doing things, creating innovative programs like LEAP to give these individuals the opportunity to make lives better for themselves, for their families, to just, I feel like being a part of the CRNA community would enrich someone's life. We need to open ourselves up to that and be willing to do that and not be resistant to it. So just open up your hearts, open up your minds to allowing people to demonstrate to us that they deserve an opportunity. I don't think you could have wrapped it up on anything better than that. I think that's, that's absolutely spot on. And Sonia, we first we want to thank you for being on the show. I know Sharon was in just saying it took a year, but you know, good things come to those who wait. And I'm going to tell you from my perspective, and we've done what Sharon, 180, 190 of these shows now. Um, I don't know that anyone has done a better job articulating and painting the picture of why this is important than you have today. And I mean, you know, even when I asked that question earlier, I don't think I've ever heard a better response to that question than what you gave today. And obviously you're passionate about this. You've lived it. You grew up in it. You explained it in such a way that that I think anybody could relate to that. And I think that's important because, you know, a lot of times we just kind of see it our way and we just say it our way and it's not relatable. Um, But you did it in such a way that even a white guy who, you know, is not even in your industry really gets it. Um, And I think that's important. And and we want to thank you for doing what you do for CRNAs um, for the past 25 years, which I still can't believe, Um, (laughs) you, you know, because I think the whole premise of this show is to to build a better community out there for CRNAs. And, and we love having people on like you that are actually out there living and doing that exact thing. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Well, Sharon, what do you think? Is it a wrap? 
I think so. All right. Well, we want to thank our listeners for listening to Beyond the Mass with Jeremy Stanley and Sharon Pierce. If you like our show and want to help us grow, Sharon, how can they help us grow? Well, the number one way is to leave us a review, but make it positive because we all know there's way too much negativity in this world. Absolutely. Tell all your friends, share us on social media and help us grow. You know, Jeremy, we're in the top 50 medical podcasts in the country on our way to number number one. And we're already number one in the CRNA community. There's no other podcast in the CRNA community that gets more downloads than we do. So we're very proud of that. You know, we never, when I think back on this, Sharon, you and I have this, this talk at a meeting and then all of a sudden neither one of us has done a podcast and and then here we are you know a few years later and um i'm just proud of that i'm proud of the fact that that we built this same here all right until next time it's a wrap Have you thought about what would happen if you weren't able to work for two or three years? You know, on average, 25% of people will file a disability claim, and most of us aren't prepared for that loss of income. Every CRNA needs to protect their biggest asset, yourself and your ability to earn with a disability insurance policy. We recommend contacting Robert Smith, a master disability insurance specialist with more than 30 years of experience and 1,800 CRNA clients to find the coverage that fits you best. The best way to do that is to send him an email at rsmithjr at financialguide.com. That's rsmithjr at financialguide.com. Or call him at 504-394-6557. Beyond the Mask is made possible by the team at CRNA Financial Planning. With almost two decades of experience, the firm guides CRNAs through the complexities of investing and financial planning. Schedule a free consultation today by calling 855-304-3748 or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. Hi, this is Jackie Rolls, President of the International Federation of Nurse Anesthetists and President and Founder of Our Hearts, Your Hands, a global anesthesia support community that takes donations to allow nurse anesthetists in low and middle income countries to go to educational programs, buy equipment or textbooks. Your donations are tax deductible and we would appreciate your support. OSA EMR is a free anesthesia EMR developed by CRNAs that you can download and use on an iPad. Our nonprofit mission is to make sure that solo and small practice CRNAs can digitally record their anesthetics. To learn more, visit OSAEMR.com to download and consider donating to our cause. Remember, for CRNAs, data is destiny. Be sure to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere you like to listen to shows. Also, be sure to check out beyondthemaskpodcast.com. Each episode is posted there with a corresponding blog post, and we timestamp important parts of the episode to help you quickly get to the content you're looking for. Also, check out the special series section on the site. 
You can follow along and catch up on the CRNA History Series, episodes specifically about political conversations in the industry, or try the CRNA Personal Finance Series. It's all on beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And if you have a question for the show or want to be a guest or even suggest a particular topic, fill out the contact form on the site or send an email directly to us at info at beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And lastly, let's take the conversation social. Check out our Beyond the Mask podcast Facebook page and Facebook group.